Gresham College presents Girls into Science, Part 1 Perspectives on Science with Sarah Cooper, Rhiannon Main and Sue Fishburne um, Before we do get on to the main bulk of the presentations I felt it was appropriate to say why we're all here and how it, how it happened As always these things seem to happen by chance. You don't actually wake up one morning and think, oh, I know what. Um, I think we'll get the guild hall and invite 600 girls along and we'll talk about girls in science. It, it doesn't actually happen like that. Uh, what happened in my case was um, 1996, the Girls School Association had a conference in Brighton and Margaret Rudland has a lot to answer for because she, as the then president of the GSA, invited me down to give a talk. And this was because she knew me because um, I was at Godolphin and Latimer. So um, she called in a long-standing debt I owe to that school that I should come and give a talk to the GSA. Um, I did that, and in the informal chats that we were having, it emerged that many of the teachers who were present at the GSA, were worried about girls and their attitudes to science, the fact that they saw it as very much a male domain, that they were put off it by the image, um, they didn't think it was about people, and for a host of reasons that I'm sure we'll explore today, they were concerned that girls who were particularly um, appropriate, possibly, uh, were not necessarily uh, following that route for all the wrong reasons. It's okay if you follow it, if you don't do it for the right reasons, but to um, not do science for the wrong reasons. Uh, was, was of concern. And so an idea started to hatch in my mind. Well, wouldn't it be nice to explore those issues? Wouldn't it be nice to all get together and talk about why girls don't like science and uh, perhaps more importantly, what concrete can be done to improve uh, the facilities and opportunities so that girls aren't necessarily forced into doing science, but they can see it as an option and a serious option and that they're as informed as possible. So this idea started to germinate in my mind that wouldn't it be great to have some kind of meeting. Now normally that would be impossible because organizing something on this scale, as you might imagine if you're um, a university employee with a full-time university job, is not the kind of thing that you would take on lightly. So I wouldn't have thought twice about it. It would have stayed as a fantasy had it not been for Gresham College. And I ought to say a word or two now about this marvelous oasis in the city that uh, has received very little attention and far less than it deserves. And I ought to just say a word or two about Gresham College in case, as I suspect, many of you haven't heard of it. Gresham College was the brainchild of one Thomas Gresham, who was a financier in Elizabethan times, and he wished to promote the new learning as he saw it. And in order to do that, he established uh, a series of chairs uh, representing the leading edge of, of scholarship at the time. And the remit was for the people that hold those chairs, the professors, to give free of charge lectures in the City of London. They were then, in those days, delivered in Latin. Fortunately, that's no longer the case. But um, for 400 years now, this institution has been promoting scholarship to anyone who wishes to come in from the street to sit there and listen to lectures delivered by people such as myself. Because I hold the chair of what's called physic, not physics, but physic, note the Elizabethan term. So I lecture on biomedical issues um, six times a year. And for me, it's just marvelous to be able to talk to a whole cross-section of society and to talk to people who are there, not because they have exams to pass, but because they genuinely are curious about um, the subject. So Gresham College exists to promote scholarship and education. And under the auspices of Gresham College, we were able to organize this meeting. And I'd like to say straight away, before um, we get too involved in the meetings, how indebted I am and everyone is to Maggie Butcher, who's the academic registrar of Gresham College, for really being the pivot of this organization. She it was, together with Margaret Rudland and 
myself who formed a committee to really um, realize this. And while I'm on to thanks, I ought to thank not only Gresham College, but the Corporation of London and the Department of Trade and Industry who have sponsored much of what is happening today and also the Girls' School Association and an American philanthropist, Peter Myers-Briggs, uh, for whom you should be grateful for your lunch boxes because um, he provided the money to provide, um, to provide lunch. Now, it really came together after I'd, I'd spoken with Maggie and Margaret that this was going to be possible and that um, under the auspices of Gresham College, we were able um, to use the Guildhall, this marvellous facility here in the, the centre of London. It actually started to take shape. Now, several people have queried things with me and said, well, why haven't you invited boys? And why aren't there state schools, lots of state schools coming? And what about the people in the north of the country? Now, I'm fully aware that in an ideal world, it would be marvellous to have all people that were interested on why girls don't necessarily choose science. But what I wanted to do was to, uh, first of all, apart from make it realistic, because we couldn't invite all the schools in the country, to reduce the problem, if you like, to its simplest. Let's take a scenario where there's not even the problem of sexual stereotyping because you're being educated with boys. Let's take a situation where it's a girls-only school. And let's explore, even in a girls-only school, even then, why girls don't like doing science. Now, if this works today, and I'll be very grateful for feedback, if, if you feel you've learned a lot, then perhaps we could repeat this in the north of England, perhaps we could en en widen uh, our sphere of inquiry into mixed schools and why girls um, who are being educated along with boys, why they too feel that they don't want to do science. We could widen the remit a little bit, but at the moment, it seemed, let's start as simple as possible. And I think you'll probably find that it's even not as simple as that, that there are a series of, of complex problems. But that is the idea, to focus on the most um, direct question we can ask. Why do girls in girls' schools find science or the prospect of science a problem? And are they being adequately informed? Now, as you'll see from the program today, um, there is a lot of chance for interaction. And it struck me that if this was to be a true conference, rather than having people just stand up and lecture to you, it would be very nice to hear from you too and to hear your views too, to hear your concerns. Because I'm not a secondary school teacher, I don't know. As a, as a research scientist, as a university scientist, the kind of things you want to hear from me, the kind of reassurances you need, the kind of problems that you imagine face university scientists such as myself. So I'd like really the hallmark of today to be as interactive as possible. And that's why we have the panel discussion after lunch. Um, the other issue I thought it was important to broach was why some people don't like doing science. And so instead of just having scientists here, I thought it was important to hear from someone perhaps have been put off science and to be totally upfront and say why they didn't like science, just so we know whether these perceptions are valid, whether they're not. Um, well, I'm sure they're valid for her, but how that should they apply to other people, how one can tackle them, accommodate them. It's very important to hear both sides of the story. Um, so for that reason, I'm very indebted to um, Sarah for coming along, Sarah Cooper. And I'd like to first of all introduce you to Sarah. She's then going to be followed, as you can see from the program, by Rhiannon Main, who's going to talk about why she's done sciences. And then we're going to hear from Sue Fishburne to give us the teacher's perspective. So as I say, really, this is going to be um, everyone giving their view on girls into science, not just a few of us standing up lecturing at you. So in that uh, spirit, I'd like to first introduce um, Sarah Cooper, who, as you can see here, is at Crowham School, Crowham Hurst School, not Leeds, as it says on the front. Um, she's currently preparing for A-levels in English literature, history and French, and AS level in Latin. And she's offered, been offered places at Sheffield and Nottingham, I gather, and hopes to read law. And she's now going to talk to us about what prompted her to make that decision. Welcome, Sarah.
Thank you. Good morning. I can't say that it wasn't without a little bewilderment that I received an invitation to come and talk to you today at a conference entitled Girls into Science, being myself, as you've heard, a student of English literature, French, history and Latin. It has been suggested that perhaps my purpose in being here today is to dissuade you from science before it's too late. Although the last thing I'd want to do is give you a completely biased opinion. So whether or not you have already, already decided that a career in science is the thing for you, I'm going to give you the chance to hear things from the other perspective. I think it became quite obvious to my teachers from a fairly young age that I was not going to be the next Einstein. Judging largely by my infamous inability to hold a test tube without somehow allowing it to slip from my grasp and smash in the sink. In fact, the thought of spending the rest of my life in an overall and goggles didn't really appeal to me in the slightest. Instead, I tended to have more success in the field of the arts, stemming largely from my love of words. This became evident at the age of six, when my entire class was sentenced to spend a lunch hour writing lines for our misdemeanor. The following day, when all had been forgiven, we were encouraged to bring to school a toy or a game, as it was the last day of term. However, while the rest of the class busied themselves with Barbie dolls and Action Man, I was to be found by my teacher in the corner of the room, diligently writing lines. When asked why this was so, I could only reply, but I like writing lines. Having also undertaken to read the dictionary at the age of seven, I didn't find it particularly difficult when making my GCSE and A-level option choices to conclude that a career in arts was what I wanted. Happily, however, my artistic pursuits have now taken on a slightly more interesting front than writing lines and reading dictionaries. But my love of words has not diminished. In fact, overwriting seems to have been my only problem with essays. Letter writing is what I spend a great deal of my spare time doing. I have several pen friends around the world, everywhere from Japan to Nigeria and from Sweden to Burkina Faso. Writing letters has not only provided me with great enjoyment, but it has also enabled the formation of many friendships, which have in some cases resulted in exchange visits being arranged. My love of words has not been confined only to the English language. I write to some of my pen friends in either French or German. Although I have to admit that my study of Latin has not, have, has, hasn't as yet uh, provided proof conducive to finding any pen friends with similar linguistic tendencies. Surprise. <laughs> my A-level French course has provided me with the opportunity to study French literature, which has been a most interesting experience, although at times rather challenging. Reading is an important part of the arts, and last year I took a leading role in the establishment of the Literary Society for the Sixth Form at my school. 
looking back at the time when I made my GCSE option choices. I now realise several things which weren't all that apparent to me then. I think that much of my reasoning behind opting for the arts was based on the fact that I had managed to convince myself that enjoying the arts was synonymous with disliking the sciences. And I can now see that the decision doesn't have to be as clear-cut as that. Consequently, I decided at the end of Year 9, against the recommendation of my teachers, that I wanted to study single science for GCSE. As it turned out, I ended up studying for double award science, and I can genuinely say that I'm glad I did. My interest in the arts may mean that it holds greater fascination for me than what I learned during my time in the laboratory, but it doesn't exempt me from the need to study science too. Science is an essential part of your education, no matter what your chosen career field happens to be. There were other reasons for my choice to follow the arts, both at GCSE and A-level, other than simply the fact that I didn't particularly enjoy science. The aspect of the arts that I like most is the freedom of expression which it allows. There is never a right or wrong answer, and I myself enjoy the reassurance of knowing that whatever I say is valid, just as long as I can find the evidence to support it. I also enjoy the individuality of the arts. No two writers, poets, actors, musicians, painters, or characters in history are ever the same. And for me, the arts provide a real insight into humanity. In the autumn, as you know, I am hoping to study law at university. Nowadays, universities willingly accept applicants to law courses from either a scientific or an arts-based background. As an art student, I have been particularly drawn to a career in the law because I have always found that the why appeals to me more than the how. And my love of analysis and of being able to influence the way in which people think have, I feel, been well developed during my study of the arts and will prove especially useful in the legal profession. So, whether you feel that you have already decided upon a career in science or not, I hope that I have given you a little insight into life as an art student. And I also hope that I haven't influenced you too heavily in your decision. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Sarah. And now what we're going to do is uh, hear someone who made alternative choices, and that is Rhiannon Main. Rhiannon is studying physics, chemistry, and maths at A-level and hopes to read natural sciences at Durham or Bristol. Good morning. My name is, as you now know, Rhiannon Main, and I hope to convince you that studying science in the sixth form and beyond is both rewarding and fascinating. I also realise that your very presence here indicates that you are already interested in the possibilities that science offers, and I therefore may be preaching to the converted. I have, since a small child, been fascinated by how things work and why they work. Everyday life is full of working things. I am quite sure 
that at some time today you all travelled on a machine that was once considered to be on the leading edge of technology. Train, bus, car. If you walked all the way here, you're probably too tired to consider that the machine which drove you is a vastly more complex mechanism. The human body, driven by the human brain. Computers are growing daily more complex, yet easier to produce. The universe itself obeys laws, and learning what some of these laws are has been a source of wonder and amazement to me. Now, this isn't to say that I didn't enjoy other subjects at school. I did, and I still do. But in the end, it had to be science for me. I'll tell you my final reason in a few minutes. Science covers a huge range of subjects, all under one vast umbrella. Now, you're all in your first year of GCSE, so you probably think of science as just physics, chemistry and biology. But each of these can be broken down into many more. Geology, botany, astrophysics, archaeology and so on. The list is endless. Just think of the number of choices of course there are. I hope to go to university to study natural sciences, although I am really interested in space technology. I enjoy finding out about new areas of study so much that I am not yet ready to choose one in which to specialise in. I want to give myself just a little more time to make up my mind. I love experimenting. Practicals really give you the opportunity to see how things work, to investigate the past and predict the future. My interest in the future of space technology encouraged me to apply to Space Camp, a great experience, where I was lucky enough to win an essay competition, which may be easier than you think. As a result of this, I was invited to go to the Paris Air Show as a guest of Matra Marconi, who helped build part of the Hubble telescope. While there, I met both American and European astronauts. From science in the future to science in the past. Those of you who have watched Tony Robinson and the Time Team will be aware just how many areas of scientific specialism are needed to interpret the past and the past of our universe. There are so many fields opportunity opening up for scientists. And female scientists, well, we're in great demand. After all, there aren't that many of us. Employment opportunities, sponsorship, they're out there waiting to be taken advantage of. I've already enjoyed work experience in medical physics, both in and outside hospital. And lastly, as promised, my final reason for choosing science. I want to be part of the future. I want to have a say, even a small one, in shaping it. And not just let it happen to me, because science is a boy's subject. Our future is far too important to leave it all up to the men. Well, thank you very much, um, Rhiannon. Um, Sarah and Rhiannon are available throughout the day if you'd like to collar them. 
and just talk to them a bit more about their decisions um, and what they're going to do at university and so on. It might be that as well as talking to the rest of us, and you're welcome to collar us too, that uh, you'd like to hear from much more grassroots how they're feeling. So they said that um, they're happy that any of you should, should go and talk to them, uh, I say, throughout the day. Finally, we now turn to the teacher's perspective, and I'm very pleased to welcome Sue Fishburne, who, as you see, is the headmistress of Leeds, Girls School, Leeds Girls High School, where she's been since 1970, 1997. Before that, um, she spent a brief period in medical research, having done a degree in physiology and biochemistry, and then moved into teaching, um, initially in Birmingham. She eventually became head of biology and deputy head of the middle school at Hodge Hill Comprehensive. And after a period of part-time and supply teaching, uh, she returned to her teaching career full-time and became head of science and deputy head at Stafford Grammar School uh, before moving on to Leeds. So could you please welcome uh, Mrs. Fishburne. Well, thank you for that introduction. I must say, sitting there a moment ago, listening to our last speaker, I felt um, as if this was a before and after because I could relate to so many of the things that she said. Why, first of all, am I a scientist? I'm a scientist because I have a curiosity about and a fascination with what makes the world tick. Where did that start? It started with a chemistry teacher and it started with an 11-year-old pupil pupil was, of course, me, a very old-fashioned science lab in a co-educational grammar school. And I remember vividly sitting on a stool that was probably too high for me, listening to the idea that I could separate iron filings from a mixture of iron and sulfur. But if I heated it, I had something new. And not only that, but it had this neat shorthand. And I could express this, and I suppose this is the scientist in me lacking the words, but liking the conciseness. I could express this in one line of Fe plus S equals FeS, and the rest of the world would know what I was talking about. That spark developed. A little bit further on into my secondary school career, somebody explained about respiration and cellular biology. And I remember as a 14-year-old standing there thinking, wow, all these myriads of organisms around me are all made up of cells. And they're all carrying out this same bit of chemistry. And nobody's organizing it. It's just happening. And then somebody introduced the idea of photosynthesis. And I suppose it gives the age away when I say this was before the greenhouse effect was thought about. And along came the idea that this was in a perfect balance. There were all these green plants taking back in this carbon dioxide and recycling the oxygen. So that initial spark was lit by an inspired, I might say male, chemistry teacher. It wasn't put out by the physics teacher, who at the age of 14 started his physics lesson by saying, well, looking at 50% of his class, women never make good physicists. Perhaps it says more about my personality than his, that to me that was a challenge and I was going to prove him wrong. That spark grew into a flame. That flame still burns. I can't walk past a bookshop without stopping to browse along the science shelves. 
I can't walk past the newsagents without looking to see what's in this month's Scientific American. Although I've moved from being a scientist to perhaps spending a great deal of my time as an administrator, I still at heart am that biochemist. I can now marvel at all the spinning molecules on the cell membranes in those myriad of organisms pumping hydrogen ions to make ATP as my knowledge has grown. I can look out at the stars and think that what I'm seeing happened millions of years ago and wonder what the perspective of Earth is from outer space. I can look inwards and wonder whether my being and my personality is merely the result of ions moving across the membranes and neurons. Perhaps there's somebody behind me who's far more qualified to answer that question. Is it really just limited by chemical transmitters and genetically laid down linkages? Or is my soul more than chemistry? I can consider electrons. Are they in a particular place at a particular time? Does Schrodinger's cat exist? And does the consciousness of the cat alter that problem? And for those of you who have yet to come across Schrodinger's cat, perhaps that's a question that will like the spark in you. Physicists, it seems to me, are still looking for the theory of everything. And if by everything we know, we know it through our conscious mind, will the conscious mind be the next thing in the next century's physics textbooks? James Maxwell, who was a famous physicist, expressed the view that atoms would be forever outside the realms of physics. They were, he said, God-given objects, and neither they nor their properties would ever be fully understood. Nobody in 1889 would have guessed that the physics of the 20th century would be the physics of the atom. Are we better equipped to predict the topics for the physics of the 21st century. To the teachers here today, one thing I would say to you is certain. If we fail to light that spark of inquiry in the minds of the girls in our schools, the world will be a poorer place. To the students here today, I would say let no one tell you that science is dull, dry, and boring. With the basic tools and skills at your fingertips, you will discover a world that is limited by your imagination and your ability to ask questions only. Thank you. For all information, please visit www.gresham.ac.uk.